Welcome to another episode of In at the Side, brought to you by the Dodgers Sevens and ITS. I'm Dom Harbin. I'm joined by Scenario Nil. And this evening, we're joined by the man who does this. The move across town from Harlequins. Borthwick, oh, and he was absolutely knocked back into next week by Atwood. Of course, it's Bristol Bears' second row, Dave Atwood. How are you this evening, Dave? Very well, guys. Thank you very much for having me on. Coming on. No worries. Thanks for coming on. So, I think we'll start with recent news. Obviously, Friday... Give obviously well-known Barb support myself. Give us a bit of a bashing. How was uh, how was that for you? Uh, I, t- to be honest, I, I'll be honest about this. A little bit of me was quite sad about it, but yeah. I, I think as a player, you do always enjoy playing against your friends. Like I, I'm very privileged to do the job I do. I love what I do, but uh, when you get to play against your friends. In a, in a properly meaningful way, not just bone on bone contact in a, in a properly <laughs> meaningful way. It's actually really quite an enjoyable experience. But obviously, there are some problems with uh, with how things are going over there, um, and it's not it's really not a happy camp. And there comes there, there kind of came a point uh, in the first half where the, the kind of competitiveness is kind of drained out a little bit, and you you actually feel uh, certainly I felt a little bit sorry. For, uh, for some of the guys because ultimately no one no one turns up and doesn't care like no one it's not a, a yeah, feasible yeah. act to perform like the, the the guys who turned out for Bath on Friday night they all wanted to be there they all are, uh, are trying their best to to make things work but the, the problems are right on the wall there's problems in, in the camp and it's not working and um, you feel sorry when you can see the effort going in People, yeah. people like Tom Dan, etc., like probably bleeding for the calls. Although I think he's, he's basically every time he takes the field, he bleeds. Um, <laughs> they, they, they're trying and trying, and it's just not, not working for them. But... Yeah, not to stick on Bath too much, but obviously this week in particular, a couple of departures, some relatively big names in there. Zach might be in one of them. Obviously, they're getting the replacements in. Some arguing not quite the big names that are leaving. You know what? You know, is there problems at Bath at the moment? Do you think? Uh, you can look at it a couple of ways. Obviously, with the with COVID and the, and the reduction of the salary cap, there's obviously going to be pinching going on around the place. There's going to be tightening of belts, and Bath have been uh, fortunate, certainly through the eight nine years that I was there, and, and since then, of having a pretty star-studded lineup. And the yeah. reality of that is, it's, it's not cheap, um, and when you look at some of the guys like Zach Mercer, who's kind of come come up through the system, as it were, um, he will have been a very cheap player who has become yeah. a very expensive player. And, um, I mean, that's credit. He, should, in theory, should be a cheaper player, say, than uh, Tulupe Balotel. But he's also a very different player to Tulupe Balotel. And to have, obviously, the, the two of them is, a, is an absolute luxury. And... You can understand with the, the reduction of the salary cap that with negotiations going on the way they are, that players are going to have to make difficult decisions. That being said, obviously, like Friday night and, and recent results have, uh, have kind of told the story, like things aren't, aren't right there. So you can read into the departures as it is, but they, they obviously are making recruitments. Um, it's easy to speculate now before these guys have turned up and started uh, start doing the business. If they turn up and they're amazing, then all the fans are going to be talking about how wonderful the recruitment is and what great decisions the club made and 
yeah. um, I think it's easy to easy to do that in, in hindsight and, and now without any knowledge it's easy to throw mud and say oh well are these bad decisions or not but I think be be wary about um, dismissing dismissing the, the departures as meaningless because I think there are obviously there's problems on the field but also don't look too deep because um, like I say the, the salary cap's gone down from from seven to five and a half there's a 25 percent reduction across the yeah. board um, that has to come at a cost. You can't just imagine that all of these big players who are big players are going to knock 25% off their salary when they're potentially looking at increases if they, if they move. Well, you mentioned, obviously, salary caps and, and, and you know, cost of players and things like that. Do you think that COVID has had a big and will have a, a lasting effect uh, on you know, the Premiership rugby as such, you know, I know that um, we spoke to a few Gloucester players on here on, in the past and obviously, like you say, everyone was asked at one point to take pay cuts and things like this. Do you think that some clubs are going to struggle more than others and, and, and do you think we're going to start yeah. seeing that? Yeah, for sure. I think uh, some clubs are in privileged positions and I think some clubs aren't. And I don't say that specifically with regard to the owners, but I think more in terms of the infrastructure. You look at clubs that, own stadiums that have got long-standing sponsorship relationships that um, aren't renting facilities, all of this kind of stuff. Um, that's These are things that really affect the bottom line. And mm. clubs that don't have that infrastructure, they don't have stand capacity. COVID has obviously taken a massive effect in terms of the financial income of clubs. They're virtually getting nothing outside of TV rights. There's very little sponsorship going on. No one's yep. paying money to have their name on a big stand when there's no fans in the stand. So um, it's very, very difficult for, for clubs to manage this. And I think the, the, the powers that be have seen this as an opportunity maybe to scale back and limit the risk um, that a lot of clubs were in, um, essentially gambling with income that they hadn't secured at the time. So I think what we what we saw in terms of player salary reductions was clubs signing contracts that they didn't know that they were going to be able to pay. Yeah. And they didn't have insurance in place to cover them should the, the, the unforeseeable happen. Yeah. And that's bitten, bitten a lot of people in the backside. They did, the clubs didn't have the infrastructure to be able to compete and to do that. Yeah. And we almost lost a few clubs and there still is the opportunity for that to happen. So we don't, yeah. don't speak too soon, but... I think it's definitely going to involve a lot of restructuring. I think in terms of the squad distribution, we talk about the pinch in rugby. So there's this kind of the superstar, the, the semi-redrados, the Charles Pietals, and then there's the academy people. And Zach Nurse is a really interesting example of this because he's kind of one of those players that started at the bottom end of the salary distribution in the academy and is now kind of at the top end in the superstar. But this middle guy, this middle gap, that's the bulk of the squad. They're the guys that are really winning you the premiership. You need the, the superstars to turn up and sprinkle the stardust and, and stuff like that. But they're not there every week. They get injured and stuff like that. And you need to rest these guys and rotate them. And you need guys to step in and do the business. That's the middle gap. That's the pinch. And I think... For a long time, that's been getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And we're trying to fill that gap with more academy and more superstars to make it work. And unfortunately, it doesn't, it doesn't work. You can't, you can't do that because the academy guys aren't robust enough. And the superstars, you can't afford to get enough of them. 
So mm. yeah. I think COVID is going to force quite a, an honest redistribution of that, hopefully, and yeah. that will open the open the middle gap. And you might see some some stars really excel because people are not prepared to lose their rock stars. Yeah. Um, but hopefully, it will mean that, that that pinch opens up a little bit. Yeah, well, that's, that's a great answer. And one, I wanted to stick on COVID just one more thing. In terms of the actual games themselves, do you think that COVID has been a bit of a leveller? Um, and what I mean by this is, you know, you go away to, to Gloucester in a normal season, you know yourself, obviously, the shed is is quite a formidable, um, th- you know, 16th man on the pitch a lot of the time. Do you think a lot of the games and results have changed or, or been, you know, different to what they may have been with a full, seed, a full stand of, uh, you know, supporters? Weirdly, I think the biggest impact that COVID has had has probably been the refereeing. Right, okay. Because I think the, the referees obviously will feel less perceived pressure mm. than the crowd. Like with, without, without crowd baying for blood and stuff like that now, they're looking yeah. at players on the field who are baying for blood when yeah. a, 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 a decision doesn't go their way. But that's obviously a lot less intimidating than, like you say, a full shed full of... Yeah. Um, full of uh, exuberant fans. Yeah, so, yeah be careful what I say. Uh, uh, um, but um, yeah, I think, I think that's, that's a really interesting and I'd love to see some statistics on it because referees are the same as the rest of us. No one's going out and trying to have a bad game. They're yeah. trying to do the right thing, make the right decisions and they get things wrong the same as the rest of us and they get criticism and are un- often unfairly criticised. Yeah. Because people assume that they're they're like robotic and they should just know all the answers. They should see. They have a a set of eyes. They see what they see, and they have opinions and they like and dislike players and people in the same way that, that everyone else does. So, um, they will be affected by the fact that there are no crowds. I think in a positive way, and I feel on the pitch like there is more opportunity to build meaningful relationships with referees because they're less pressurised. I've found it in in all of the games where there haven't been crowds that it's easier to I'm a fortunate person in that I've generally got pretty good relationships with most of the referees in the the Premiership. We can can converse and talk and on the field, off the field Um, but uh, certainly I feel like that is an easier thing to do at the minute than it has been historically. Well, second rows and back rows have to get on well with the ref because you stick out like a sore thumb. They'll, they'll spot your mind yes. off. And, and usually like, we're the ones doing bad stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> yeah, I, thought you were, I thought you were a centre, mate. You, keep, you tell everyone you're a centre. I play every, I play every <laughs> position, mate, wherever I'm needed. Yeah. Get, me, get me on the field, I'll play where you need. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> well, hold you to that. So just coming to your career, obviously starting at Bristol professionally. How did that come about? What got you into the game? You know, West Country. So I I was at a football playing primary school uh, in in Downend, Barley Close Primary School. Shout out, please, Rex. Um, <laughs> and uh, my 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 parents moved moved home, and I in terms of moving primary school, I went to a smaller countryside primary school called Hambrook. And uh, a kid in my class, one of my friends. His mum was the team manager for the, right, the local kids rugby team. And she basically was like, oh, big kid, can't get him. Go and see if he wants to come and play rugby. And that literally was it. And they dragged me along. Um, it was like minis rugby. I, I must have been seven or eight or something like that. And uh, 
we played a local team and I didn't know the rules, but they just chucked me on, had a good time running around and I slid tackled someone. And nice. the, the dad who was refereeing at the time was like, well, I kind of have to yellow card you. And um, oh. some one of the parents I was like, he's never played before, he doesn't know the rules kind of thing. So it was, it was a good introduction for me. Like That was how rugby was going to go for me. <laughs> but I, I enjoyed kind of youth rugby, a bit of school rugby, but nothing meaningful. I just went to a state secondary school. We didn't have professional training up but it's like some of them do now and all this kind of uh, all this kind of jazz. amazing isn't it um yeah. i was involved in the bristol academy when i when i was kind of younger coming through the age which has played a bit of county rugby and then they sat me off when i was 15 or so they, they they called me into the office and said thanks so much for your time um we don't think you've got what it takes at the minute um keep plugging away and maybe we'll be back in touch like they do the big the big pile so i went and decided I was going to have to look at getting a real job and becoming a real boy. Um, so I went to university and I thankfully went to university in Bristol. Um, and while playing for Bristol and a local men's team, Richard Hill, who was the, the, the English from who was the Bristol coach at the time, he uh, caught sight of me and said, he's a big lad. Just come along, come along and play a bit of rugby for United. And then, Six months later, I'd signed a senior contract with the club and I was um, playing England age group rugby. And it was kind of like from literally nothing to I was playing a World Cup in Dubai for England and 19. So it was all a bit crazy. Yeah. Wow. And that, and is, that, is, is that the game out of all of yours that's sticking your head? There's got to be one game above all others that, that sort of sticks with you. What, what's that game that sort of still well, rings? I'd, I'd, I'd say there's a couple. One, so my first game of men's senior rugby was with a team in Bristol called the Dings Crusaders. Yeah. Now they've got a good reputation to the Dings, tough, tough hard minds rugby team. Although they've moved to sunnier pastures now and they, I reckon they've probably lost a bit of their edge. Um, but uh, the, the first game of the season, I just kind of joined that. I was 17 at the time. Uh, we we couldn't field a Colts team with the, the, the club I was at so I went and joined the Dings Crusaders with the, the points machine, Phil Q, was their, their coach. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he, uh, their club captain, a guy called Mike Jeffries, was injured first game of the season. So I got chucked in to, to start against um, old Pat up in Gloucester, who's like the local rivalry, basically. Yeah. National Three South. It's a decent, decent, it was a decent, decent level of rugby yeah. to be playing in the Shout second round. Getting, yes. Yeah. Well, I used to play. Well, say I knew getting through old Pats. I used to play against Dings for old Pats, and they were always a, it was always a tough game. Yeah, it's always a, like no, I mean fun kind of things. But I um I got yellow carded in that game for punt. Their scrum half was a little bold bald guy. Um, I feel like he was their captain as well. I I might that might yeah. be made up. I don't know, but we I got I I've got no memory of the game at all. But I I've feel like I punched their captain. He punched me. We both got the other card. Um, and uh, that was my first game of senior men's rugby. They love that in the Dings. That was right up the oh, street. So I basically age, started, yeah. started every game for the rest of the year. But <laughs> my dad, who was one of, along with my mum, like my, my biggest fans, obviously, uh, he came along to the game. And because he's a tight ass, he uh, came on the team bus. He didn't want to drive up himself. So he got on the team bus and came with the lads. And on the way home, obviously initiation, first first game, 
I had to drink half a bottle of port and eat half a block of lard. Oh, no. Very reasonable. My dad had to do the rest. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> no, that was, real messy, yeah, real messy. Uh, so I, that one always sticks out for me because it was, it was quite symbolic of me transitioning into men's rugby. Mm-hmm. But I think um, the, like, anyone who ever has the privilege of representing their country will probably cite an international game, or, or for me, certainly my, my first cap. And I couldn't tell you a thing about the game other than it was at Twickenham and it was against New Zealand. I couldn't tell you anything about the game at all. No. Um, but I remember the feeling before the game of the kind of an empty stadium, there's nothing going on, and you get in the changing rooms and it's quite deep in the stand and then you, you kind of come out into the tunnel and the kind of wall of noise of like 80,000 80, fans chomping away, drinking beers and shouting, cheering, singing. And as you come out, the pyrotechnics going off and as the, as the flames disappear and there's this kind of haze and heat and you kind of feel like there's so much noise that it's distorting the air as you're trying to walk out. Like the, the I mean, even now thinking about it, it's, uh, it's like a, a proper buzz for me, but... But uh, I got no idea about the game, but I remember that vividly. Amazing, amazing. And then what happens when the whistle goes? Do you literally just lose all the? Does all the noise yeah. go the moment you start playing? Ah! <laughs> yeah, you got no no idea. Literally, no idea. you know, you know like, oh, do you think about all the fans? Like, no, I was too worried about like messing stuff up. Yeah, too worried about yeah. what's what am I supposed to be doing? This guy is much faster than me. I'm trying to catch up with him. <laughs> I remember the the after match. Like I mean, it was rock stars, Kevin Alamo, like Richie McCall, like all Manonu, like uh, it's literally Dan Carter. Like obviously, it was mental for the guys I was playing. Top of Fango though, um, just watching them run past. <laughs> yeah, literally. Like, can you sign this to me? Uh, uh, in the after match, uh, my mum had enjoyed herself uh, during the game, and so they're both school teachers. My parents all were. And uh, I've got a photo absolutely devastated as my mum has marched over with a programme to get the All Blacks to sign their programme and is sat in Kevin Milamo's lap. I was very fortunate enough, obviously, to, to spend uh, six months or so out in Toulon uh, where I crossed paths with Marnonu again. Mm-hmm. And uh, he he remembered this. This was obviously a thing that happened that they thought was hilarious and talked about. They didn't know it was me or it was my mum particularly at all, but they remembered this, or he remembered this incident. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I've got a photo of it, but it, honestly, I was like dying, dying oh. inside. I was so embarrassed. Amazing. That's <laughs> that sounds amazing. So, from Bristol, didn't move far, Gloucester. Just up the road. Yeah. What instigated yeah. that move? So, it was, it was a very difficult time. Obviously, Bristol were, were struggling in the league that year. It was looking pretty dire. Things were, were kind of falling apart. And they'd come to me with a, a pretty decent offer for me to stay. And I was quite open yeah. about this at, at the time. Um, but... Uh, I'd been in, in some conversation with, with people up at Gloucester. They were in the European final. They'd finished in the, in the top four in the Premiership that year. Um, 
and I basically had to sit down and assess what kind of a, a rugby career I wanted to have and what, what, how aspirational was I, what did I want to achieve, what was important to me. Um, and there were a couple of things. One is that I, I wanted to negotiate off my own back. I wanted to feel like I was having these conversations myself rather than kind of hiding behind an agent or you obviously get, you get someone like that to, to manage the details of a contract because like you sign anything as an 18, 19, 20 year old and you don't yep. know what you're doing. But um, you, I wanted to kind of have these conversations face to face and talk about how I, how I fit in. And the, the honest answer is I felt like I'd get more opportunity to play a higher level of rugby at Gloucester. That was the year that they changed the format in the championship to this kind of playoff system. But obviously, in the subsequent eight, nine years, Bristol fell foul of many, many times. And um, I was in the position of being part of a a building of Bristol to come back up into the Premiership. But the reality is, a year or two of building, hopefully an opportunity to get back into the Premiership, yo-yo back and forth because no one comes back into the premiership and then skyrockets that's just not how it works mm-hmm. and then you're looking at eight nine years of your career gone before you're at an opportunity to really compete mm-hmm. in the top half of the premiership if you if you've got international aspirations which being involved in the, the England setup I did and I was kind of being touted around as someone who, who might come into a place Martin Johnson eventually which is all amazingly exciting things for, for a young second row to hear Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I decided that Gloucester offered better prospects to me and the reality of it was six months later I was in an England training camp and going on tour with England get my first cap for England and Bristol spent unfortunately the next eight, eight or nine years kind of bouncing back and back and forth championship, premiership and back and forth mm-hmm. but look at them now the same, yeah you know, Killing, like, um, perfect and obviously you went you went yes, to, definitely go on sorry Dom no, carry on. Oh no, say. And obviously, you went. You know, you were at Bath for, for quite a while, obviously, um, till 2019. What affected the change back to Bristol? Was it, um, you know, some some of your old mates still there wanting to, wanting to get you back? They've been, you know, trying to. There was a, there was a, there was a bit. I, I had kind of conversations with. We used to do um, uh, some like unit training, so we'd have the, the Bristol forward pack would come over to Bath, and we'd go over there, and we'd um, when we had opportunities to do live because you. When you're training in a rugby team, you can practice lineouts against each other, but you obviously know each other's calls because yeah. you're using the yeah. same calls. So sometimes it's quite hard to get a really honest feel for what you're trying to do. So we often try and instigate situations where you can train against an opposition. And um, we, we would do so against Bristol a number of times. And at times I'd had conversations with Chris Boy. Uh, where he'd kind of give me the nudge, nudge, wink, wink, <laughs> coming back to Bristol kind of thing. And I'd never really taken it seriously, because I was I was very happy at Bath. I thought I was going to be a, like a 10-year 10 10-year 10 lifer at Bath, as it were. Uh, and then the, the kind of the, the salary cap debacle happened, um, and I ended up down in Toulon. And How did that move come out? Because, no offence, but that has got to be one of the most random moves in the rugby world it just like it felt like it just came out of nowhere uh, well it did <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'd um, I'd injured my knee playing uh, or I'd had the the occurrence of an injury while I was 
uh, with England. I kind of got it in a, in a training week and then I played a test match against South Africa and I basically had some swelling in my knee. Um, I didn't really have any functional soreness or anything like that, but swelling usually means there's something going on. So we'll have an investigation. And the investigation said you've got a little bit of wear and tear in your knee. Not really enough to cause this much swelling, but um, we'll, we'll kind of scale you back a little bit. We'll rehab things and maybe if we strengthen the muscles up a little bit and give it a chance to settle down, it'll just go away. Sometimes the body just yeah. does things. But we, we kind of did this for a couple of months and then we came back and we got a bit more intensive training and then the swelling wasn't really receding. So we kind of scaled back again and then we tried this again. And this kind of lasted for about eight months or so. Thankfully, a huge chunk of that was off-season. So I kind of, I was injured for a bit and then I came back and played a few games and then I kind of went back and was in, injured again. Although, again, I'd had no functional pain or anything like that to make me it wasn't like I'd taken a bang and be like I am injured um, and then the, the way the salary cap works is you are if you're injured at the start of the season you don't count towards the salary cap so say you've broken your broken your leg full all the ligaments everything's everything's completely put in your knee you're going to take a year, 18 months, more, two years maybe, to fully recover from that. So if you're injured at the start of the season and you're injured for the entire season, then you don't count at all towards the salary cap. But as soon as you play, your entire salary goes onto the salary cap. Whereas if, I'm, if I got injured in March and... Bristol were to sign a replacement for the end of the season, they might sign him on £500,000, but only pro rata would count towards the salary cap. Yeah. Right. So that's quite a crucial, crucial understanding. So I was injured at the start of the season, so I was outside the salary cap. And there is dispensation in the cap if you receive injuries where a club that is close to salary cap could recruit outside the salary cap but only to a certain degree. There's only so much lead room. And unfortunately, if you are just unfortunate and you get 50 injuries and you have to bring in 50 replacement players, then you've so it's like £100,000 or something like that. It's not a huge amount of money to do all of your injury replacements should you be unfortunate with injuries. Right. And at the start of that season, we, we had a number of injuries in the front row and we had to bring in several tight heads and a loose head or two. Um, and they basically used up all of that leeway. And we were in a situation where, unbeknownst to me, the, the, the contingency had been spent and also the space left by me being outside the cap had been spent. Oh, so right. Bath were in a position where if I played for them, they would breach the cap. Mm. Well, this is certainly what was communicated to me anyway. But it wasn't communicated to me, which was my issue. Is I, it's kind of October, November, and I'm fit and available to play, and I'm not picked. And I think, well, maybe it was because it's a 4G pitch at Worcester or something. And then we have a home game against Gloucester. No, we had a couple of European games. So a couple of European games, and I wasn't registered for Europe, so I didn't back too much of an eyelid about not being picked then. Yeah. And then we played Gloucester at home on a Saturday local derby, my former team, 
Well, as far as I'm aware, I got injured on injury duty on one of our first two or second rows. Yeah, I'm not sure. the team. So I've kind of banged down to Blackadder's door and eventually he's passed up. And they're like, look, this is the situation. Um, you're you're outside the outside the salary cap at the minute as soon as you play for us. And Bruce is worried that if you play and like aren't any good, then we've breached the salary cap and haven't like seen any reward for that. So well, we, we breach the salary cap and we lose you for the rest of the season. What a waste on everyone. Which I, I understand the principle in, in business sense. I, that's fine. I get that. But just tell yeah. me, be honest with me about that. Because yeah. what I want to do is find some, some kind of solution to this. So eventually they passed up to this. And so there was a discussion. Of, there was no uh, United rugby going on at the time. I was going to have to wait until March for the next kind of United rugby for me to prove my fitness, as it were. So uh, it was suggested I could go to London Scottish for a couple of weeks. Now, the deal with loans is you agree to go on loan. But once you're there, you're there until they ask you back. So I could say, yeah, yeah, I'll go and, I'll go and play a couple of games to London Scottish. And then after two weeks, they're like, oh, we just need you to play a couple more. And then before you know it, I've done six months at London Scottish. Mm-hmm. And I, from my state of mind at the time, you're not very mind, I got England, injured playing for England. Yeah. And now I'm chucking around uh, with London Scottish. Or, and... Uh, it was just a very strange situation and the club wouldn't commit to any kind of binding contract about bringing me back. I've kind of written up a contract and said, look, I will go to the Scotch, be available for two weeks and then you will register me to play at the Premiership. Mm-hmm. They weren't interested in signing that remotely. No way. Um, so, essentially, I, I, I felt like the only option I had was to, to retire retire from, from the club to hand in, hand in my notice and cite their, their failure to register me for the competition as breach of contract and to, and to resign. So I, um, I, I wrote out, a, I got it upstairs, I, I wrote out a letter of resignation. Um, and then before I got a chance to, to hand it in, I got a phone call from Stuart Hooper saying, how would you feel about going on loan to Toulon? Now, this obviously wasn't a couple of weeks to see if you're okay and then we'll bring you back. I felt like this was a more earnest, we're not going to be registering to play for Bath this year. Um, how would you feel about going to Toulon for them? And it was literally that you told me on a Tuesday, the Wednesday I was in Toulon having a medical, the Wednesday night I was packing my bag, and the Thursday I, I was in Toulon and that was me. Wow. Wow. It was literally out of, out of nowhere. And off I went to, to Toulon. And obviously that really was part of the souring of my relationship with a number of people at Bath in terms of the management of, of me and the injury and just, a, just what I felt like the, the honesty and upfrontedness of it. Yeah. Like the decision to not communicate that situation with you, who was the, who would that have sat with? That Would that have sat with Todd or Bruce? Or... Well, I, there's a lot of people like... Yeah, in between, intertwined, yeah. Yeah, like, and the, the, that's been one of the gripes that a number of people have had from a playing point of view. I've had with Bath for a long, long time, is they never felt like it was particularly clear who they were negotiating with. Like, if you were back in the day, if you if you well, if you were negotiating with Bristol, you want to talk to Bristol, you talk to Pat Matt. That's it. There's no are oh, you 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 talk to Steve, you talk to Chris, and then you have a chat with uh, Pat, and then. 
you talk to one of the four, you talk to, to uh, Alison Dickinson or John John Muldoon, and and then you'll have another chat with Pat, and then then you'll you'll get a, a conversation from uh, Mark Tainton, and then then Steve will be on the phone. Like that that just doesn't happen at Bristol. You want to contact, you'll talk to Pat. He'll give you the nuts and bolts. He'll talk money. He'll talk tenure. Yep. He'll talk duration. He'll talk everything. That's it. And and that's how for me that's how it's supposed to work. But that's never really yeah, been the case. But certainly in my experience, even as a re-signing player, like it's one thing as a new player coming in, but even as a re-signing player, there's kind of a sense of I'm not really sure who I'm supposed to talk to about renewing my contract here. So you just kind of yeah wing it all the time, which is always kind of a bit of a bit of an issue. So certainly, I, there are people who I felt I were not directly responsible but I think there was an element of a lot of people feeling like it wasn't their responsibility to communicate to me what was going on so it was almost yeah, so I didn't want to sort of make it their issue it wasn't a, a, a single person who was like the, the joker in the background like pulling the strings kind of thing I think there was a, a large element of the, the way that the whole system was set up it was never really designed that someone could be accountable for communicating or not communicating. Mm. And do you think that's changed now with Hooper coming to the forefront of everything? Obviously, being an expo oh, himself, I, he may I have really thought. I that, really or... thought that. Um, I really thought. I genuinely really thought that when he took over a kind of managerial position in the club, that that would be one of the things. That were like alignment, just top to bottom alignment. This is the this is yeah. the chain of command. This is the route. I really thought that that because he was he was he was a player and he was a genuinely great captain, and he at the time was one of one of my greatest friends in rugby. One of my longest standing relationships in rugby was was Stuart Hooper, and um, that really didn't manifest itself. And in the the all of the all of that kind of debacle. He like he performed the same function as the kind of rest of the management and getting honesty. Whether whether people felt like they it wasn't their place to say or yeah, like unfortunately as a player, I don't care whose place it is to say. I want to know what's going on. Are you going to yeah. honour my contract or not? And then coming back from from Toulon, and I got out there and was welcomed with with open arms. I loved the rugby I was playing. I loved the environment I was in. I mean, there was a, a large degree of, um, choose my words carefully here, um, an owner who was very, very keen on being involved on a rugby level. Uh, Toulon had that. So that was that felt familiar. Um, and I, 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 I went and had a conversation face-to-face with Bruce about my desire to explore opportunities to stay in France. The reality was I didn't feel like I'd been managed or treated particularly well. Um, no one, I didn't feel like anyone in Bath had really, aside from the medical, the medical staff had worked tirelessly and fought night and day to try and get me fit and available to play. And they were as brass tough as I was that I then wasn't Imagine. being picked kind of thing. Yeah. So yeah. I didn't really feel like anyone was fighting for Dave Atwood to come back and play for Bath. Mm. Um, and I felt really quite let down about that. So I spoke to Bruce and I was like, oh, this, is, this is how I feel. I'll be completely honest about you with that. I'm not trying to hide it. 
Um, I would like your blessing to to speak to to other clubs. I don't want to do things underhand. I want to speak to yeah. the clubs about today. Yeah. That Did was... that come as a surprise to Bruce? Because I mean, at the time, yeah. There seems to there seems there seems to be a lot of mystery around Bruce at Bath. Like how yeah, involved well, he does, is he? he does, I mean, that was one of the things I really liked about Toulon, if I'm honest. Is yeah. I really didn't mind that there were no rumours that Morad Boujelau was involved in telling coaches what to do or signing players or anything like that. Yeah. He was there every day. He knew everyone's name. He had an office on site. He would talk to people. He would like, he knew everyone's names and would get involved and have discussions and he would be involved. But the mystery uh, at Bath is there's a sense that that kind of goes on, but it doesn't always marry up. It doesn't always marry up to that at all. Um, you sort of, like, yeah, you know, you sort of get this see, picture. See him around the place to, to feel like that's what he's doing. Yeah. But there was always this kind of sense that there's a, like a puppeteer in the background, which you can kind of understand, and there's no evidence to the contrary. So it's very easy for the rumour mill to spiral away and kind of get out of control. So I do kind of temper things because ultimately he, he's, he's a man who's taken over a rugby club, invested a lot of money, and wants the rugby club to do well. And he's doing what yeah. he can to encourage that to, to happen. And I absolutely applaud that. I think that benefactors in rugby is a really great thing because it gives so many opportunities to, to players, fans, all sorts of all sorts of things. I think it's really great. But the, the, the way that it's kind of come about at times doesn't, doesn't particularly work. Mm. So when you, um, obviously you mentioned when to, to on, obviously um, going over to France, was that a bit of a, a culture shock? Was the rugby, was it just easy to slot straight into the team or was it, you know, a completely different way of playing over there, or was it? Did you just so, find I mean, it's only, it's only it's only Toulon, Dave. You know, I yeah. got I got there on the Thursday, I said, and on the Sunday, so I moved into a hotel because I didn't have any accommodation for me at the time. I moved into a hotel, and on the Sunday we went skiing for the week. <laughs> the whole team, coaches, everyone, off we went skiing. For a week. Uh, we stopped. We stopped when we got up to the Alps at a school, and we did like a rugby training session in a foot of snow for like right, all the nice. cameras and a bit of PR and stuff like that. And then the village <laughs> where we did that, they put us all up in a, in a, like a hostel kind of thing. So we all stayed there, free ski hire, and off we went skiing. Can you That's imagine nice. a club in the Premiership letting the entire, it's not even just a team, a team full of, I was roommates with Brian Abana. We let Brian Abana go skiing. Me and him were doing, me, him and Dwayne from Newland doing skiing lessons together. Oh my days. <laughs> I mean, felt like a surreal dream, skiing. didn't it? Yeah, it was absolutely wild. Absolutely wild. So that, I mean, that was weird. Um, then there's obviously like a, a heavy Fijian contingent at the time. People like Semi and Josh Tussauds and so cooking goat's yeah. heads, curries and stuff like that floating around the place. And so that was bizarre. Um, the like the food at the club was was shambles. It's like a jobs for life kind of thing. There'd been a a, a lady who cooked the cooked the food and the bloke the, the chef they called him chef, and like every day it was like the same. It was like spam and peas every day. <laughs> Whether there was anyone training or not, it would be out on the on the tables, and then you just put it back in the fridge and get out on the following day. Oh, so yeah. the lads used to just go for food at like a, a local restaurant, and I genuinely kid you not, they would eat anything and drink anything. So, really? like, steak, wine, chips, pizza at lunch, and then go back and train in the afternoon, and then 
get kebab on the way home. And that is absolutely God's honest truth. Straight away, get yeah. kebab on the way that home. That sounds like my diet currently. But yeah. I'm obviously been not like trained as much as you love. So. Yeah, you, uh, you eat yeah. better than trained from Munich. <laughs> He's been training as a taboo player for years, yeah. <laughs> he I just know, didn't know. Exactly it. that. <laughs> right, I'm just going to come on to a few questions. Um, I mean, we haven't really timed this potentially well. Asking bar players, obviously, big adorers of yourself after a Friday night spanking by local rivals. Ask a few questions for the pod. Um Paul Steer, explain the difference between Bath and Bristol currently and how Bath are going to move forward. That's a, I mean, that's a big one to start with, to be fair. It's difficult to do cultural things at the minute because of COVID. Yeah. So team building is particularly difficult and you need a real work ethic uh, for each other. And you can only really do that by building relationships with each other. You like, I, when I think about my time playing for Bath, playing with the Bath badge on me was a very important part of it. But the honest truth is I played for the people in the share. I played for Leroy and I played for Dom Day and I played for Rob Webber and I played for Carl Ferns and Reese Priestland and, these guys, that they're why I played the game. That's what motivated me to play the game. And I wouldn't, I'd find it very difficult to build those relationships under these kind of conditions. So it's difficult when you've got guys come in under this kind of conditions to, to do that. There's obviously some issues around um, direction and translation of, or transposition, should I say, of direction onto the field so at times they look like they are not singing on the same hymn sheet um and there's a million reasons for that sometimes it's it's people with their own agenda sometimes it's um confusion around around maps and play sometimes it's uh, a lack of confidence sometimes it can be very like um minor misfortune. I, I said in an interview before the game, watching a lot of our footage, I actually felt like an awful lot of their presses were really, really good. A lot of their yeah. scrum, a lot of their more setup, um, really, really effective. And actually, I think, of all the teams in the Premiership this season, they've really suffered at the hands of a few refereeing decisions. I don't necessarily mean decisions that went against them, but maybe things that didn't get picked up that would have made a material difference. So someone collapsing a ball, for instance, that no one picks up. And as a result, they don't score. But that scoreline would have changed the result of the game and suddenly they're in fifth and not ninth. And yeah. those kind of differences make, make... It's still early days in the season. That's what we six rounds in, seven rounds in. Like, it is early, early in, in the Premiership. There's... 20, 20 plus rounds to, to get through. So there's plenty of time for the landscape to change a little bit. But certainly there, there is an element of cohesion that is uh, is lacking. For sure. Um, oh, Ian Coombs, obviously not happy bunny. How long after Friday night's game with the Bristol Squid laughing for? Say again. Uh, how long after Friday night's game were the Bristol squad laughing? 
I, well, I'll Craig tell Mackerel, you, he was I'll, very not happy, but about 20, 25 minutes into the first half. Uh, like, we, we made kind of, kind of a, a point of this ourselves, actually, because sometimes you get kind of carried away with mob mentality. And yeah. we, we made a point ourselves. We don't, we absolutely want to be a team that celebrates when we do things well. You put in a big shot, uh, an awesome ball carry. I mean, when Semi did that mental 70-meter run, like, you want to celebrate those things. Absolutely, you want to celebrate doing things well. But there's a fine line between doing things well and being cocky and arrogant and ridiculing. And it is genuinely a very fine line. And sometimes in games like those, you, you wobble and some of the stuff goes across the line and that makes stuff that wasn't across the line feel like it was across the line and I think we we had some conversations at half time about addressing that and it's also something we talked about afterwards because we want to be a good team but we yeah. also really care about being good people and that's one of the big drivers under, under Pat's influence is it is really important be a good bloke be a decent person and that means like having some compassion and empathy and consideration. And we, we went up to Sale last year and took a 50-point hump it. Mm-hmm. We went up to Saracens last year and took a 50-point hump it. And it happens. It's not the end of the world. Yeah, like yeah. You can rebuild and, and fix problems and get things right. Absolutely, that's fine. Um, but I, I was being genuine when I said earlier that there, there was a point in the game where you could see the frustration on, on players' faces. And they're friends of mine, people like, Reese Priestland and, and Henry yeah. Thomas and, and Tom Dunn. These are good friends of mine. Mm. So to see the anguish on their face when like continually things just aren't aren't happening, aren't starting to place, is it's difficult to see. So I'm sure the Bristol fans enjoyed it an awful lot more than the, the Bristol players. Because yeah. ultimately it's it's kind of functional for us in a sense. But it's something that we talked about at halftime because there there was a sense that some of us felt where we were we were treading too close to that line. Right. And that's the yeah, thing, isn't it? Because ultimately, yeah. if you if you were to really put the screw in and, and shove it in their faces, you could be on the you know the receiving end two weeks later by another team, yeah. you know, and that's why you gotta you gotta yeah. it's the difference between football be and rugby. Celebrate when you do things well, but don't celebrate when someone else makes a mistake. Yes, like, exactly. no one's trying to make mistakes and you're going to make a mistake sooner or later. And the, the louder you shout about someone else's mistake, that's going to come back tenfold when you do. Yeah, yeah definitely. Okay, just I've got a few more. I'm going to stickler through some of these. Uh, Paul Stickler, would you consider resigning, please? <laughs> I, uh, I think I've answered that one already. Uh, um, to be honest, you know, never say never. Never say never. Like, yeah. I... I I've still got friends, like a lot of the coaching staff uh, and the, 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 the medical staff, particularly, obviously, people like Byron uh, is, is a rock star, as far as I'm concerned. They, they are really, really good people in that organisation and I really want to see them succeed because I, I really care about those people in that organisation. So you never, never say never stranger things have happened. Yeah, awesome. Well, that leaves a, that leaves a door open for my son. A couple more asking when you're re-signing. Obviously, um, why does everyone think we let him? Um, that was one of the questions. Chris Windsor also answered that. Why does everyone think we think I left? Yeah, basically. Well, 
I, ultimately, I, like I say, I, I tried, I, I looked around and found an option and, and I ended up negotiating to stay with, stay with Toulon. It was all verbally agreed. I drove a removal van home. I got some stick and some bath bun because I was driving around in a Toulon truck for, uh, for a couple of weeks when I was back. And then a couple of days before I was due to go back, I got a phone call saying, look, no, I know that you've agreed to pay your way out of your contract, but we need you to pay even more to get out of your contract. I was like, well, you can't do that. I was like, well, then we'll see you back at training on Monday. So back at training on Monday, I was got, And then um, like three or four months later, they said, oh, by the way, we're, we're not going to renew your contract. So, right. Yeah. So it's not even a discussion. No, 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 we're just not going to renew your contract. But right. cool. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much for the lovely Bath fans represented as well as per usual online. Um, I think that pretty much wraps it up for me. Neil, anything yeah. from you? Yeah, I've just got a couple of couple of the, the usual type of questions. Um, the Obviously, with the lockdown returning, we had shelved this question. It was, we were asking this on the first series to all of our guests. Um, right, the scenario is you're, you're in lockdown with a player you've played with. <coughs> Excuse me. And this is proper lockdown. You cannot leave the house. Uh, let's just say one of you's got COVID, so you're having to like isolate together. People are bringing you food. Wow, that's and escalated that one. Yeah, it's got it's got serious. Um, and you're there for two weeks, right? Out of every player you play with, who would make it in absolute living hell, and why? Oh, who would take it in living hell? Yeah, <laughs> you thought oh. I was going to go the nice way, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, I did. <laughs> who would make it a living hell? Um, who would make it a living hell? Let's. Uh, so a contender would be Johnny May right okay why is that just I just couldn't deal I couldn't deal with the like he's a lovely kid really well meaning but he's not the sharpest tool in the shed <laughs> like I think I'd 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 struggle with that a little bit, um, but he is pretty harmless and he like he he's a nice guy. So I think um, Elliot Stook, I think I don't think I could handle his like relentless, um, like continual barrage, his non-stop like rugby banter. Like I don't think I could handle that. That would be. Tom often says I've got too much banter. That's you know that's something he says about me. Yeah, it was fine. It's having a bit, having a bit. It's great, lovely. Twenty <laughs> minute conversation, half hour conversation, great. But yeah. two weeks, two weeks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, it's... I, the, the thing that really kills me is like messy. I, I hate, I hate, I hate people that can't just deal with their own stuff. So like, the, yeah. the door is broken. Fix it. But, can just leave it broken, and like the garden needs to tidy in, the bins need taken out. Like, do it. Don't wait. That yeah. stuff kills me. Yeah, it's uh, quite a lot of our guests have said the similar sort of things. You know, people that are, are too messy would make it a nightmare, and it's it's weird. I've, I have to work it out, but I think most of our backs have said forwards, and most of our forwards have said backs, um, which makes a bit of a less than them and us type. Yeah. Thing. 
But yeah, I don't know if that says something. Uh, you know, if between the forwards and backs, the age old. Uh, I think I don't think I could. I don't think I could handle Matt Banahan's practical joking all the time. No, yeah, bad <laughs> ones. Oh, it like is like you like hide you in the corner and like jump out and scare you like fifty times. What's the, worst, what's the worst prank he's pulled then? Uh, oh, I, I genuinely feel sorry for his family, his whole family. If you watch his Instagram or their Instagram, his his father-in-law. Oh my god, I feel so sorry, so sorry for them. Brilliant. Who would make it an absolute dream then? Who could you just breeze through two weeks with? I'm thinking about this. Samisa Rockadagoon would be great. Because yeah. he's very quiet, very tidy. You would never see him. Really? He literally would just like he'd sleep all the time in his room, fast asleep all the time. Akapusi Quera, another one. He yep. he would actually sleep during the warm up before a game. No, then he'd go out, be a rock star, go back and go straight back to bed. <laughs> never see him like that would be dream. Dream. You don't have to do anything. Basically, like living on your own. Perfect. <laughs> Fair play. One more, one more uh, of the questions we've asked quite a few people. This is a, a sore-related question. So you wake up in a dark room, you're chained to a table. There's three other people there chained with you. On the table, you've got 20 pints of Guinness, 20 pints of Foster's, um, three bottles of Jaeger, two bottles of vodka, and uh, a margarita. I don't know why I threw that one in there. Um, you've got to finish well, these drinks. Huh? A pizza. Margarita? No, the drink, the margarita. <laughs> Is that not got to get it? Didn't land at it. Yeah, didn't it's land. <laughs> Straight over his head. Don't force it. Don't force it. Well, there's a pizza on the table as well, yeah. Right. <laughs> Who, right, you've got to pick two people to help you, uh, help you finish all these drinks within, I don't know, let's say four hours. Who would you pick? Alex Brown. Right. We all lost a second round. Our team manager up there. He's uh, he's got lead boots. He, I I think I've watched him see off twenty pints of bass on the team social. Um, Rob Weber, a very very competent drinker of beers. Very very competent drinker of beers. And then third, I tell you, <laughs> Leslie Vinacola. Right. So, Leslie Pondicone, we had a team social up in Gloucester once. We got a bit out of hand, obviously. Um, and the following day, we so we had like an all-night bender. And the following day, we when I say an all-night bender, like one o'clock, me and Brownie were in a taxi on the way home. Um, the following day, we met back up in Cheltenham to go on like a pub call for the day. Leslie Pondicone hadn't been home, but he had been to a petrol station, picked up a jerry can, Filled that with mojito, and was drinking that oh, when we met okay. up the following morning. I'm like, that is, that is a proper way of doing it. <laughs> yeah, I was like, what? wow, that <laughs> what is... is going on here? <laughs> yeah, I think they they they'd be my drinking dream team. Perfect. I mean, Perfect. that's probably the most solid setup we've had. To yeah. be fair, a jerry can full of uh, full of booze. That's aspirational. That's, that's what you're waiting for, kids. That is, yeah, that is pro rugby. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, thank you very much for coming on, Dave. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, yeah, really and uh, yeah.